Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey, here to take you through the variety of top talks given at Boss Conferences over the years. This week, Praxology with Rory Sutherland. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. For those not familiar with the term, praxology is the study of human action and conduct. In this talk, Lori brings together psychology, philosophy and economics to demonstrate how software developers, entrepreneurs and engineers need to embrace this forgotten science. From unlikely beginnings as a classics teacher to his current job as vice chairman of Ogilvy Group, Lori is an expert on consumer behaviour, trends and the influence of the internet. He analyses what branding means, what creativity is, and the value of persuasion over compulsion. Happy listening. The understanding that actually technology without psychology can actually be a source of dangerously misapplied effort. And this is the example I always give, which I gave at a TED talk a few years ago, which is a Eurostar train, which for some years now has actually carried people between London, Paris and Brussels. And after about 10 years of this, they decided to do what the French had done years before and upgrade the track between London and Folkestone, which is where the train enters a tunnel to go into France. Uh, The cost of the track was about £6 billion, about $9 billion. And what this did is it reduced the journey time from about three hours, three and a quarter hours to about two hours, 40 minutes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not absolutely disparaging the beneficial effects of engineering. I was just asking whether, in terms of the hedonic opportunity cost, this, the best way to improve this journey with a budget of $6 billion would be actually to reduce the duration from three, minute, three hours 15 to about two hours 40. It, most interestingly, I think, is the fact that still, after spending $6 billion on making the journey a bit faster, there is still no Wi-Fi on the trains. Now, I would argue from a creative point of view, there are two sorts of people on the train. There are people who need to work and there are people who like looking out of the window. Those people who like looking out of the window aren't overly bothered by the duration of the trip. They probably quite enjoy it. It's also worth remembering about train travel that if you look at the last train journey you made, everything about it was a nightmare except the train journey itself. Getting to the station, carrying your luggage, getting up a flight of stairs, parking your car, buying a ticket, all this was absolutely dismal. Once you actually sat on the train, it was really quite enjoyable. So you might also raise a question, which is why are you spending $6 billion reducing in duration the only part of the journey which isn't crap? Okay. A third suggestion in terms of the hedonic opportunity cost is you could, indeed, with that budget of six billion, as an imaginative creative marketer, you could have simply employed all of the world's top male and female supermodels, got them to walk up and down the length of the train throughout the journey, handing out free Chateau Petrus. Uh, you'd still have five billion left in change and people, people would ask for the trains to be slowed down. <laughs> now, there's a very interesting point which emerges from all this. And it's, it's what I call the creative double standard, which I think Josh would be interested in as well. I think Josh would support me here. Which is that when you have a creative idea, it is, and perhaps quite rightly, heavily policed by people more rational than you. 
If you come up with a creative idea, it has to be presented to people for costing, cost-benefit analysis, ROI, all manner of massive rational processes are deployed to police creativity. However, this does not happen the other way around. If someone comes up with an idea they think of as logical, e.g. £6 billion reduced journey time, they don't go, well, this is probably quite logically valid, but before I actually put it forward to anybody else, I'll show it to some really wacky people to see if they've got some weird ideas they might come up with instead. <laughs> um, so what you have institutionally in all organisations is a double standard, that creativity is very heavily policed by rationality, whereas rationality actually goes dangerously unpoliced. As I think this example shows, if you think creativity is expensive, you should try logic. Logic... <laughs> Logic can be spectacularly expensive because it takes you down a line of pretty much unquestioned, you know, assumption without ever asking the question, you know, is this whole thing based on a completely erroneous premise? Now, you've got to watch engineers here. One of the things you've got to remember about people who like engineering, and that applies to all kinds of engineering, but particularly mechanical engineering and indeed financial engineering, accountancy, other highly... Um, mechanistic disciplines which are strongly affected by what some psychologists call physics envy. It's the belief that actually my discipline, in order to have validity, must have exactly the same level of mathematical consistency and predictability of physics. Whereas actually most things in life, to be absolutely honest, certainly most things involving human beings and people are much closer to meteorology than they are to physics. <laughs> you know, they're much closer to, you know, something deeply uncertain. The problem is is that people who actually like the mechanistic world and are trained in it um, aren't very comfortable with the blurry bit that comes when you deal with people. The kind of counterintuitive stuff, uh, the, you know, uh, the stuff that's completely counterintuitive, things that are entirely disproportionate, things that are illogical. Actually, most of the people, interestingly, the marketing director of Eurostar has now found that since they reduced the journey time, he quite frequently gets complaints from people who said they preferred it when it was longer. That's not completely crazy, because if you're coming back to the UK, bear in mind you've actually spent an hour and a half getting through Paris dealing with French people, OK? After which you've probably, to be absolutely realistic, earned yourself a good sit-down. Um, <laughs> So, the problem we face is that highly rational people, highly rational people, are actually uncomfortable with a lot of the implications of psychology. And, and, and indeed are uncomfortable dealing with people full stop. That's why when you go to get your car serviced, the human experience is generally so bad. Because the people who like repairing cars don't like dealing with people. That's why they leave you standing around feeling like a complete idiot for 30 minutes uh, while you're waiting for anybody to say, can I help you? It's that famous phrase that was often said about actuaries. It's how, how can you spot an extrovert actuary? Uh, when he talks to you, he doesn't look at his shoes, he looks at your shoes. Um, <laughs> but actually, actually, this engineering bias, this physics envy, has far more serious consequences. And this is an interesting exercise. If you look at these five university faculties, where do the suicide bombers come from? Uh, Islamic studies is a very, very distant second. Number one by miles is engineering. By miles. Now, if you, want, if you want the backup, not only, of course, was Osama bin Laden from an engineering family in, in Saudi Arabia, um, but uh, Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib was a mechanical engineer, uh, Mohammed Atta was an architectural engineer, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed got his degree in mechanical engineering, and two of the three people behind the Mumbai attacks were professors at the University of Engineering and Technology in Lahore. 
In addition to this, uh, I, I used this slide a week ago, and someone rang up to point out that in, in Egypt, the nickname for the Islamic Brotherhood is the Engineers' Union, because so many of them are actually qualified engineers. Now, in Bayesian terms, this is an extraordinary fact when you think about it. And it suggests that if you want to improve airport security, <laughs> uh, don't bother with things like ethnic profiling, religious profiling, any other kind of thing. Just ask them what they did at university. Uh, if it was engineering, rubber gloves on, basically. Um, the... Um, the likely reason for this was investigated by two sociologists called Gambetta and, and, and Hertog, who believe that uh, there is a particular mindset among engineers that disdains ambiguity and compromise. Uh, they're more passionate about bringing order to their society and see the rigid, religious, unambiguous law put forward in radical Islam as a way of effectively taking your physics envy and applying it to how you behave in everyday life. In other words, a, you know, a, a scientific approach to everyday life which allows for no compromise or ambiguity. And uh, actually, it's interesting that the report from British Intelligence shows that Islamic extremists who frequent col uh, college campuses actually specifically single out engineers as the most likely recruits. So this isn't... Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not disparaging engineering culture or indeed the huge advances it's brought to humanity. I'm flying back this evening on British Airways. I don't want to think that the people who check the wheel nuts on the plane are desperately creative and imaginative people. You know, um, you know... Ah, oh, hell, let's try anti-clockwise this time. You know, let, 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 let's, just, let's just break with tradition. But nonetheless, I think it's important to be alert to the fact that the very best things in life, the very best advances, actually come somewhere from this sweet spot. You know, they make economic sense, so they're self-sustaining and they work, but they actually employ not only technological ability and insight, but also psychological insight. And the very, very best things do this very, very well. This is a great example from, um, of, of uh, psychological insight applied to traffic lights. Now, on the London Underground, the single most effective thing they did to improve passenger satisfaction per pound spent didn't involve a single extra train, a single extra yard of track. It was simply putting dot matrix display boards on the platforms to tell you how long you had to wait for your next train. If you'd purely given engineers the brief, the danger is they always would have put more trains on. Or, not totally stupidly, they might have said, now we can track trains exactly to the, you know, to, to 100 yards, we will make sure that the service becomes more regular with, uh, with the same number of trains. That's not bad, by the way. What's better is if you realise that actually what's bad about waiting for a train isn't waiting, it's uncertainty. You'd probably be happier mentally waiting seven minutes for a train knowing that it was going to come in seven minutes than actually waiting four minutes for a train when you weren't sure whether a train was going to arrive at all. Someone's taken this insight to traffic lights and realised that waiting at a red traffic light is a hell of a lot less irritating if you know how long you've got to wait. And so they've very sensibly employed this countdown device which ticks along the outside. And in Korea, they did some tests and found that it significantly reduced accidents at interchanges because it kind of reduced road rage, impatience and the propensity of people to jump the lights. I might add that there's a very bad application of this, which someone didn't think of very clearly, uh, when in Shanghai they now started applying this to green lights. Um, if you think about it, anybody approaching from 100 yards away realising they've got three seconds of green left 
fairly instinctively just decides to floor it. The Koreans tested this and found that, very, I mean, all, all credit to their dedication to the scientific method, the Koreans tested this and found that it, applying it to green lights increased accidents. Someone forgot to tell the Chinese that what applies in one situation doesn't apply in another. But I think, you know, we can take, I mean, one of the very interesting things, anybody who's in the usability experience or the customer experience business actually is possessed of psychological insights like this, which you learn over time, which actually can be deployed elsewhere. One of the greatest insights of all is, I think, the software loading bar, without which no one would have downloaded anything ever. Um, some, some mark of progress is what you need if you're going to wait. My argument is, why not apply this to other things in life? This is... You know, if you take antibiotics, huge danger is arising in antibiotics because people tend not to take the full course of antibiotics as prescribed. They give up early as soon as they feel a bit better, and this causes a risk of, of resistant bacteria developing. Why not take the practice of the loading bar to antibiotics? Don't give people 24 white pills. Give them 18 white pills and six blue ones, and tell them, when you finish the white pills, take the blue ones. It's called chunking. It's the business of psychological insight in behavioural economics that if you split a task into subtasks, each one of which actually you know, has a clear milestone when you complete it, people are much more likely to complete the whole task. Um, but the problem we have is that actually within business, psychology is woefully at the moment and lacking in influence marketing lacks influence sales in many ways lacks influence and one of the reasons is i think that actually in economics there was a similar group of people who also believed that actually the perfect market hypothesis meant that you could therefore apply a kind of uh, you know rigid economic law to business you didn't need to understand people you just need to needed to understand balance sheets that was actually a quote from a, market, from a business guy in the UK. All I need to know about my customers, I can read on a balance sheet because it tells me the only important thing, which is whether they're buying or whether they're not. That's an incredibly absurd reductionist approach to human understanding, particularly as you realise that nearly all the really successful businesses you see are usually based on a really, really good human insight. Uh, McDonald's, I'll talk about later, but actually Ray Kroc had a fantastic human insight. He had several. One of them was people don't want the best burger in the world. They want a burger that's just like the one they had last time. That actually, in psychological terms, avoidance of disappointment or unpleasant surprises is actually more important to us than the attainment of some kind of platonic ideal of perfection in the burger. And that's why you'll notice in McDonald's the rules, for example, you toast the bun for 37 seconds, are so absolutely rigidly applied. And we also don't have first principles. There aren't any, if you get stuck in marketing, there aren't any first principles you can go back to, as there are in most disciplines. But Ludwig von Mises, um, anybody heard of him? Any Austrian school? Why are we getting... This is extraordinary. In the UK, nobody has heard of him. Obviously, delighted, to, delighted that the Von Mises Institute is in enforced. Um, he has a few utterly brilliant uh, things which, are, which, which fascinate me. Um, wh one of them is his understanding that it's completely wrong to differentiate, and this is what makes him very sympathetic to an advertising man such as myself, it's completely wrong to differentiate between intangible value an actual value. He believes that most economists and most businesses make a completely stupid distinction between a primary product you produce and uh, other things you do around that product that give it value. For example, marketing, advertising, positioning, and so forth. 
And the brilliant analogy he uses, he says, if you run a restaurant, it is impossible to distinguish between the value you create in a restaurant by cooking the food and the value you create in a restaurant by sweeping the floor. One of them is your primary good. Nonetheless, if you run a restaurant where the food is spectacular and of Michelin quality, but there's a faint smell of sewage in the air, the best way, because, because the Austrian school believe that, but, that value is subjective, it's contextual and subjective and can only be defined in subjective terms. They also, interestingly, as an Austrian school, refuse to use maths because they believe that numbers are an inadequate way of actually representing human preference and therefore they actually spurn most of the sort of mathematics stuff, the physics envy stuff that goes on in neoclassical economics. But that's a fantastic point because actually one of the things it says is that you know, if you've got a restaurant that has fantastic food but there's a slight smell of sewage around it, don't try and improve the food. That actually it's impossible to distinguish between the subjective part of value, which is the context in which the primary good is consumed, and the frame of mind in which the primary good is consumed, and the actual nature of the good itself. You can't say one of them's genuine value and the other one's artificial. That's a very, very interesting and very sympathetic way of looking at marketing, which I've never come across elsewhere. If you notice it, of course, many of the things, you know, um, that actually our own perception of value works that way. We can't disentangle, in many cases, the quality of food from the environment in which we consume it. We think we can, but I genuinely don't think, I, I genuinely don't think we can. I think, you know, food eaten when you're in a bad mood, you know, when there's something wrong with the surroundings, is simply less valuable food. And we don't necessarily attribute the causes accurately. I noticed this phenomenon which you might call sort of perceptual blurring. Anybody here occasionally have their car valeted? It's a brilliant thing to do because it only costs about 0.1% of the cost of a new car and gives you 50% of the pleasure, particularly if you have children who tend to mess your car up. Okay? But one of the things I noticed is whenever I had my car valeted, I left it with someone and they cleaned the car and sort of hoovered it or vacuumed it and, uh, and sort of cleaned the upholstery. And when I drove the car away, and I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, it feels as if it drives better. <laughs> has anyone else noticed this, that when you clean your car, you drive it out of a car wash, and weirdly, it feels as though it's driving better? Now, there are two possibilities here. Either, when I leave my car to be valeted, unknown to me and completely unpaid, they decide to do a complete service of the car, replacing various bearings and lubricating the thing, or actually it's something going on in my head. But actually, I think that, that, that extraordinary connection between actually, you know, our psychological perception of things and what those things actually are um, is something I'll be talking about going forward. But it is extraordinary the extent to which actually we, I think, in our own heads aren't really capable, though we think we are, of actually separating the two. I don't think we can really separate the quality of a product and the nature of its brand. I think the two actually become inextricably linked, or if not inextricably linked, they colour each other to an extraordinary uh, extent. Now, the other reason I love von Mises is because the Austrian school, growing up in the first half of the last century, were also sort of rubbing shoulders with people like Freud. And as economists, they believe that economics is actually a subset of psychology. I think most modern economists believe it's the other way around. You have perfect economic models which are fantastically efficient. You develop those using mathematics and then impose them on people. Uh, what von Mises would say is, no, praxeology, which is the discipline that Austrians use, which is the science of human behaviour and decision-making, he believed is a prior discipline to economics. Which I think, I think the, the Austrian definition is that praxeology is the study of, the, the, sorry, that the economics is merely the study of human praxeology under conditions of scarcity. That's actually his, his definition.
That's an extraordinarily useful acknowledgement, which actually the world would be a much better place uh, if, it, if it actually remembered that. Uh, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, puts it another way. In support of behavioral economics, he simply says, if economics isn't behavioral, I don't know what the hell is. Um, so what I'm hoping for is in marketing is, is actually a new vocabulary. What we have, if you, look at, if you talk to marketing, the, the language of marketing is much like the language of astrology, which is it's fine if you're talking to fellow believers, but it's not all that great if you're talking to anybody who doesn't believe. You know, if you're an astrologer and you believe in astrology, you can chat to all your astrological mates and say, oh, that behavior is typically Sagittarius, and they all nod along. Anybody else thinks you're a lunatic. Uh, my, my brother has this problem particularly acutely because he's actually an astronomer. Uh, and occasionally at parties, you introduce yourself, I'm an astronomer, and they say, that's very interesting, I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> at which point he makes his excuses and uh, heads for the lavatory. <laughs> but one of the things behavioral economics has given us is a whole variety of um, words, which are scientifically validated by first-rate academics at very, very good universities. And understanding and introducing this vocabulary into marketing is of enormous value because actually it's a kind of psychological Esperanto. You can use this language, unlike the language of marketing, to talk to finance guys. In fact, finance guys are usually very interested in behavioral economics, funnily enough. Um, because, of course, it, it, it's based on a recognisable discipline that they themselves know and simply builds on it, rather than being entirely alien to everything they know and believe. Some of these, availability, signalling, uh, that's a Darwinian term in many ways, that actually what we do is we signal things through our actions. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. Handicap, um, that's the peacock's tail thing. The reason the peacock has a huge tail is to signal to female peahens, uh, to a great extent, actually that it has resources to spare, that you ought to think of actually breeding with me. Obviously, there's a degree of consent in peacock sex, which differentiates them from the same senior French bankers, for example. Um, uh, but, um, but because I, I actually have so many resources, I can actually carry around this tail for purely decorative purposes. That's how fit I am. Now, arguably, the Ferrari is effectively the sort of, you know, the human male equivalent. It also, interestingly, has to be slightly pointless or wasteful to have meaning. It has to be a handicap. You know, if women were merely attracted to men with expensive vehicles, they'd all chase truck drivers. But the truck doesn't serve a useful signalling purpose because it's actually useful. What you have to be doing is you have to be buying something with spare resources in order to have meaning. Um, Framing comparison and context I'll talk about later. Immediacy is an extraordinarily potent thing. The part of our brain, our brain is a bit like an Intel Duo core processor. It has an older, what I call, type 1 lizard part, uh, which mostly operates unconsciously. And it has, you know, a lot of frontal stuff, which is where our consciousness comes in. Of course, because our consciousness is our consciousness, we grossly overestimate the importance the role it actually plays in human decision-making, because it's all we're actually aware of. In fact, what it's mostly doing is ratifying or post-rationalising decisions that the inner lizard has already taken. Um, the, the, the virtues of the lizard brain, which is why we haven't lost it completely, is simply that actually it's very, very decisive and very, very fast, apart from a few other virtues as well. Um, so you know, if, if you're about to be hit by a bus, don't use complex physics to work out how to jump out of the way. Rely on the lizard brain and it will be much more reliable. It's much more decisive, it's much quicker. It's also extremely difficult, not quite impossible, but very, very difficult to actually make decisions which don't involve the lizard. 
that actually it's the bit that actually plumps for I get to do this or that. There are people who've lost that ability through brain injury and they find it absolutely impossible to make a decision. If you say, do you want to come and meet on, on Wednesday or Friday next week, they'll actually start deploying all manner of statistical information like what the weather's likely to be like and actually end up in a complete funk. That's because they're trying to actually make decisions using only rationality, which is almost impossible to do. The lizard is ultimately what makes the choice. The lizard actually basically only operates in the here and now. It's very, very short term in its focus. It's why it's so difficult to give up smoking, actually, because that part of your brain has decided to have a cigarette before you have a chance to overrule it in any meaningful way. The only solution would be actually to put a kind of timer device on a packet of cigarettes which required a 10-minute delay before it opened, rather as, as safes and, in strong rooms have. That then might give you a chance of actually overcoming the problem. It's why, actually, immediacy really matters to us in an emotional way. Um, the speed of feedback. Uh, is, as anybody who's designed a website knows, just speed is an extraordinarily potent uh, thing in the success of any, any transaction online. One of the worst things, if you, uh, there are several crimes that the, the DVD player commits against behavioural economics. Uh, one of them is, of course, choice architecture, where you have 80 buttons on the remote control, 40 of which you will never use and have no idea what they're for, but those buttons are often no larger or no smaller than the buttons which control functions like play or stop. The second great crime of the DVD, the most annoying thing of all, is that when you press eject, nothing happens for three seconds. So your lizard brain, panicking that actually you haven't pressed the button, presses it again. <laughs> which means that the DVD comes out, taunts you for a second and a half, before disappearing back into the machine. That's what I mean about immediacy really, really matters. The here and now really, really matters. Extraordinarily short-term things uh, will affect purchase decisions. Even when you're choosing a pension, the ease of form-filling will have an effect on whether you choose the pension or not, despite the fact that, logically, choosing a pension should all be in the sort of 30-year time horizon. Our immediate um, irritation or, 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 or the opposite has an insane effect on how we respond to anything. Now, what's quite interesting, this is a bit of game theory if you think about it. Um, what, what's interesting is we understand a lot of this actually subconsciously. An engagement ring is a commitment device. It says that I'm probably, by the purchase of this extremely expensive thing in which I have very little uh, you know, selfish interest. But one of the reasons women like flowers and jewellery is precisely because men are not remotely interested in flowers or jewellery. Therefore, when you buy them flowers or jewellery, it patently involves some sacrifice on your part. Whereas if you buy them, for example, a remote control model car or a PS3, there's the suspicion of self-interest. Um, just, just, just a smidge of suspicion. Whereas flowers and jewellery, interestingly, there is no such suspicion. Because basically they leave blokes completely cold. Okay? This is an interesting thing because it effectively says, if I were planning a one-night stand, it is unlikely that I would have invested this much money in jewellery up front. Okay? It's actually a commitment device. Brands work in a very similar way. If I have spent, in game theory, there are, of course, two separate things. There's a short game where you just grab as much as you can immediately, and the long game where you try and build up some sort of reputational currency. Okay? All tourist restaurants play the short game. Why? Because nobody ever comes back. Possible, incidentally, that, that things like TripAdvisor are changing that. That they are actually meaning that tourist restaurants that you visit once do actually develop a reputational currency and we can kill them off. 
But actually, until recently, tourist restaurants were notoriously bad because they, ne they knew you were never going to come back, however good the food was. So why produce good food? What this is saying, what this, this upfront investment is saying is, I am probably, because this is expensive, and to have meaning, signalling sometimes has to cost money, I'm probably playing the long game. Okay? And a brand is doing the same. It has taken me 15, 20 years to build this brand. Uh, it has cost me an enormous amount of money in terms of advertising and reputation building. Therefore, it is probably not in my interest to make a quick buck by selling you something that's rubbish. What's interesting about this is it's quite sophisticated game theory. We do it instinctively. We don't do it actually rationally. We just instinctively know that someone who's a big brand is less likely to actually try and play the short game than someone who isn't. So brands are, indeed, as some economists criticise brands for being barriers to entry, but they're barriers to entry precisely because consumers want a barrier to entry. I don't want to spend £800 on a television from someone who can simply rock up and say, I now make televisions. Just as actually, I want my doctor, I don't know about you, I want my doctor to have some barriers to entry. You know, maybe like spending six years at medical school, rather than just deciding, today I'll put on a white coat. That actually, the upfront commitment, the upfront effort, is a form of signalling. Now, satisficing versus maximising, it's worth knowing, most decisions, Herbert Simon at Carnegie Mellon came up with these two phrases, most decisions in most categories, most of the time, are satisficing decisions, not maximising. Actually, we are risk-averse as human beings. Fear of, fear of loss, fear of, 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 of disappointment actually act twice as powerfully on the human decision-making process as hope of improvement. That's why it's actually so difficult to make progress through competitive progress through gradual in innovation. If you're a bit better than Facebook, I'm sorry, you're not going anywhere. Because actually, for, in many categories, most of the time, the, this category is already satisfied by something which satisfies. It's pretty damn good. So a little bit better is not... If, if, you, if you follow that sort of utility-maximising belief in human decision-making that classical economics espouses, then everybody would actually replace everything with something a bit better. But actually, something that you know that you're familiar with, that your friends have, and is pretty good, has a very, very powerful position in the marketplace. It can, it can get absolutely wrong-footed by total disruptive innovation, just as to some extent the iPod totally changed the heuristic in terms of uh, home-recorded music. I had friends, it was all about sound quality. You remember that for years and years and years? All about sound quality. I had friends who said, you know, my speaker cable costs $200 a foot and it's hand-woven by elves, okay? <laughs> And then the iPod came along and someone went, well, actually, the sound quality isn't all that great, but I can carry all my music in my pocket. And that's disruptive innovation. It changes the game completely. But actually, incremental improvements on what already exists are not a fantastic way to create market disruption, simply because of this satisficing thing. It also explains how brands work. That actually, if you want to understand McDonald's, no, there isn't a single town in the world where McDonald's is the best restaurant in town. But most of the time, it's not worth the effort to find the best restaurant in town, and actually finding it may entail significant risk. If you go to a Michelin-starred restaurant, your chance of having a horrible meal is actually much higher than it is at McDonald's.
to be absolutely honest. I mean, all of you have had bad meals at expensive restaurants, in a way. More of you have just chosen the wrong thing because you didn't know that that word was actually the French for balls testicles or something like that, OK? You know, the element of risk in, in finding out something better is quite high. I might cock up completely. Whereas there isn't a single town in the world where McDonald's is the worst restaurant in town. I know exactly what I'm going to get, and McDonald's satisfies brilliantly. I won't get ripped off, I won't get food poisoning, all those really bad things um, you know, don't really apply. So you can only really understand the success of very many brands if you understand satisfying. Heuristics are fantastic because these are the subconscious um, processes, I mean, I, mean, I suppose algorithms, you could actually say in your, in your language, which we use to do things instead of using rational logic. Very few of the world's best baseball and cricket players are fantastic theoretical physicists, you've noticed that. Um, and the reason is that although the theoretical physicists are better at doing the physics of the trajectory of a ball, that's actually a very slow way of solving the problem of where the ball's going to land. What we do is we use a heuristic, not only humans, but just to show how, uh, how deep in the, in the human brain this is probably buried, dogs catching frisbees use exactly the same heuristic. What you do is you look up at the high-flying ball, uh, and then you calculate the angle of gaze and run towards the ball at such a speed as keeps that angle constant. That's the heuristic we use. It's less optimal, arguably, than doing the physics, but it's about 100 times faster. So that, it also means you're, of course, solving the problem while you're actually running, to, while you're lessening the problem, do you see what I mean? Whereas the physics requires you to sit down, get a calculator out and go, oh dear, it's landed over there, okay? <laughs> this problem... But there are huge areas in human decision-making where we deploy heuristics without being even aware of it. Presented with three things, cheap one, middle-priced one, expensive one, most people, the very rich and the very poor are different, most people go for the one in the middle. Steve Jobs is a very big believer in the rule of three, which is why nearly all those products, the iPad and the iPhone and so forth, come out in three variants. That choice-making is sort of easier when we have three. Because we all understand that kind of rule of three. And so that's an example of a heuristic, the one in the middle, for example. Um, and um, it, it, it is, this is sort of on the motherboard. It's not in software, if you see what I mean. A lot of this stuff actually exists somewhere fairly deep within us. Choice architecture is how you frame choices so that people choose in the way you want them to choose, or indeed simply in a way that makes it easier for people to choose. Because if you make it difficult for people to choose, what they do, which is bad in marketing terms, is they choose to do something else, which is nothing at all. Okay? There's always the fifth choice, or the fourth choice, or the third choice, which is don't do anything at all. It's a pretty common default for human beings. When in doubt, do nothing. Therefore, in order to get people to change their behaviour, whether it's to make them more environmentally friendly, or indeed to, you know, uh, to get them to buy something, actually making the decision easy is and, and, and risk-free is spectacularly important. This shows the importance of a kind of... Uh, of this is the difference between different countries in Europe as to whether they agree to be organ donors in the event of their death. Nothing to do with culture, religion, politics or anything else. The whole thing is the countries on the left deploy an opt-in form where you have to tick a box. The countries on the right employ an opt-out form where you tick a box if you don't want to give your organs in the event of your death. And that sort of norm default, which is I don't really know whether I want to or not, so I'll just go with the norm. I'll just do nothing. I'll not tick something because it seems the safe option. Uh, has a huge effect. I always think the Japanese shopping trolley, the medium-sized shopping trolley, was a brilliant idea. When I was a kid, there were two ways of shopping in a supermarket. You had a massive Mack truck-sized trolley, and you had a basket. 
And so you thought, well, that trolley's insanely large, I will have a basket, and then you ended up buying a lot less than you could have because the damn thing cost, weighed a tonne. The Japanese come up with the third option, you know, what you might call the 32 gigabyte version of the trolley. And it's the one in the middle, and that's the one that everybody chooses. It's an ingenious idea. Um, I work with BP back in the UK, and they have BP and then a premium fuel called BP Ultimate, which is quite a bit superior, I hasten to add. But I suggested if they wanted to sell a lot more B BP Ultimate, they needed to create a third fuel called BP Super Blingtastic Massively Expensive Ultimate, which costs $15 a gallon. And everyone would look at that and go, oh, that's a bit expensive. I'll just have the standard Ultimate in the middle. Um, when we choose from a wine list, we all use heuristics like third one from the bottom. We don't know what we're doing. We use price as a proxy for quality. Here's an example. How many people have seen this? Extraordinary case from Dan Ariely. The, the original choice was between the Economist subscription at $59 digital only and $125 for print plus digital. At that case, 67% of people, or about two-thirds of people at least, chose the top one. I'll just have the digital one. They added a complete dummy choice, $125 for the print edition only, without the digital access to the archive. What's bizarre is that's a completely daft choice. No one would choose it unless you had some bizarre hostility to online media. <laughs> Nobody did choose it in the experiment, but it completely changed the choice that everybody made. Suddenly, two-thirds of people chose the bottom one because the frame of reference changed. Suddenly, the frame of reference was not, ooh, it's more expensive to get it in print. It was weirdly, if I get print... If I get a print subscription, I actually get the web subscription for free. So what, this drives classical economists almost insane, incidentally. Um, uh, a German car manufacturer sold 30,000 more cars by simply not, not knocking 3,000 euros off the purchase price, but adding 3,000 euros onto the trade-in price of your old car. It's probably a framing effect that actually 3,000 euros on top of eight seems a lot more generous a deal than 3,000 euros knocked off 22. Just, now, this is all, you know, very, very weird. That our perception of everything, value included, actually it's true of temperature, brightness, colour, um, volume, pain, heat, uh, um, more or less anything, pitch, with a tiny exception of people who have perfect pitch, or about two or three percent of people. All our perception is actually weird and relative relativistic and contextual, just as the Austrians predicted under praxeology. We pay $2 for a tea or coffee out on the street. We pay about two cents at home. It's probably fair to say that's not a hundred times more enjoyable. It's just we have a different frame of reference when we do that. And we don't regard it as particularly ridiculous. Strange, but kind of true. We don't have an inner, inner unit called the hedon, which measures a unit of pleasure. And we go, I will pay $5 for a hedon. There is no means we have of actually making a trade-off between money you spend on property and money you spend on radio-controlled helicopters. Personally, and my wife doesn't agree with me, I prefer to spend the money on radio-controlled helicopters. But uh, uh, there you go. Um, now, the problem is that in conventional market research, first of all, one problem, it defies logic. So logic, the engineering mentality, the physics envy mentality won't get you there. Second problem is, a lot of this stuff does not come out in market research because people are not consciously aware of their own heuristics. Not a single baseball player could describe to you how they actually catch a ball. They had to discover that by actually doing experiments with people catching balls and with dogs and with frisbees. No one is actually aware of these mechanisms because they actually exist at a subconscious level. So in market research, the danger is that they won't come out. There's also a danger in market research, which is people like to present themselves as being maximizers. 
because it makes you look more logical and sensible and sort of more demanding of quality. Whereas in reality, many, many decisions are taken from a risk aversion standpoint, not from a perfection standpoint. Now, there are exceptions. If you're getting married or you're having a wedding anniversary meal, there's a degree of maximisation because it has symbolic value. If you're a massive motorbike fan and once every four years you buy a bike, I think it's fair to say that that bike, you've talked about it, read about it, done it, you know, that, there's a huge amount of maximisation involved in choosing your bike. If you're a real fanboy in one, one or two particular areas. But in most categories, most of the time, most people satisfy. The only problem is they don't realise it. Now, just to prove how relativistic human perception is, here are, is a chessboard. You'll agree that A is one of the dark squares, quite a bit darker than B. However, it's only the context that is making you think that. If I change that context and show you the colours as they actually are, you will see that in reality, A and B are exactly the same colour. They're exactly the same shade of grey. It may take a few seconds, but you've all got that, haven't you? Now, what's weird is I changed the context back again. It's now impossible for you to see that. This isn't one of those optical illusions where you go, ooh, now I get it. Sorry, silly me. That's how extraordinary relativistic our, our perception is. There is, I think you'll agree, an even rectangle. But if I change the context, it's now impossible for you not to see that as being darker on the right-hand side. And that applies to our perception of value. It applies to our perception of pain, of pleasure. Virtually everything we perceive actually operates on a kind of relative scale, not on an absolute scale. Uh, it's one of the reasons, who's got an espresso machine? I've got one, I love it, okay? However, it occurred to me one day that if you actually filled this thing with a jar of coffee like Folgers or Maxwell House, per unit of caffeine, you'd be paying about $140 per jar, okay? Because this thing is fiendishly expensive. I mean, you will all agree, won't you, okay? But the weird thing is, they get away with it. Why? Because I don't know how much a spoonful of Folgers or Maxwell House costs. I've never bought Maxwell House by the spoon, okay? And so, because this thing doesn't come in a big jar, like Maxwell House, I can't do the comparison. It comes in little metallic pods, like this. So my only frame of reference is not Maxwell House, it's Starbucks. And I'm going, well, I'd pay about a dollar for a, you know, a couple of dollars for a shot of coffee in Starbucks, whereas this only costs 35 cents. Machine's practically paying for itself. <laughs> and that, that, that shows how powerful a perceptual relativistic frame is, is on our perception of everything. It also works, I think, uh, uh, after the event, I suddenly realised what went badly wrong with the marketing of telepresence and video conferencing. And no one could blame the people for doing it, and I certainly wouldn't have spotted this in advance. I can only spot it now in hindsight. Which is they made the mistake of making video conferencing what economists call an inferior good, which is something you only buy when you can't do something that's more expensive. Bus travel, coach travel, is kind of an inferior good, uh, unless you call it a jitney, of course, in which case you rebrand it completely. That's a New York reference. Uh, do you have a jitney in Boston? I don't know. But um, what they did with video conferencing is they made a terrible mistake. They made it the poor man's version of air travel. They should have made it the rich man's version of a phone call. If I'd been Cisco back 10, 15 years ago, I would have said, we will install one of these things in your office, but only in the chief executive's office. Because what it became was like margarine to the butter of British Airways. It was like the pager to the mobile phone of air travel. It was what your company let you do if they didn't trust you to get on a plane. And therefore, the relativistic frame, even though all the logical arguments for this thing stacked up, in signaling terms, it kind of said to your client, I can't be bothered to come and see you, but I'll go and video conference with you. 
but also to your staff, it said, we don't really trust you to get on a plane, but you can video conference. It was like saying, well, we won't let you go to Frankfurt Southern because you only get drunk, raid the minibar and watch a pornographic film in the hotel. But tell you what, we'll trust you to go down to a basement room where you can look at a pixelated image of your client for 10 minutes. Now, if you'd positioned this as the rich man's phone call, that incidentally is when they launched post-it notes. They gave post-it notes to the 499 other personal assistants, to the 499 other uh, CEOs in the Fortune 500. This is 3M. So the first post-it notes seen within an organization came from the top, not from the bottom. Very, very important thing, the way that the executive mind works, my boss has small yellow adhesive squares, therefore I must get some too. That's the point about r relative framing in terms of anything. If you end up as the inferior cheap substitute for something else, you have failed. Um, we need comparison to decide. I've said to Spotify, which some of you will know, it's equivalent to, there are various US equivalents of music streaming companies. I said, 9.99 a month for infinite music may not be a great idea because I don't know what infinite music is worth. I haven't got a clue, okay? What's infinite music worth? I mean, you know, am I also, will I also be sort of ripped off because I'm subsidizing people who download a hundred times more than I do? You know, what's all this going on? Asking, you know, how much do you want to pay for infinite music is like me saying to you, would you like to buy my unicorn? You don't really have a frame of reference where you go, yeah, yeah, uni unicorn, 50 bucks. You know, I mean, <clears throat> okay. So I asked, theoretically, I said, would you actually have more success if you set an artificial limit? You said actually 200 tracks a month. People then go 200 tracks a month, about 20 CDs, 20 CDs cost about, yeah, that costs about $140. Okay, that seems pretty reasonable. But without a frame of reference, we often find it very difficult to decide. This shows how hugely we're affected by one in the middle psychology. Two lagers there, one pound and two pounds, Carling and Budweiser. 67% by the Budweiser at two pounds, 33% by the Carling. Add a 30 pence uh, Tesco value lager. Nobody buys it, but it drags the rest of the category down market. 47% uh, by the Carling, 53% by the Bud. Now you add a premium French Cronenberg uh, for £4 in a bottle, 10% of people buy that, 90% of people buy the Bud, nobody buys the Carling. That's the extent to which we choose things relativistically, not absolutely. That would drive classical e economists practically insane, by the way. But that's how we fundamentally choose, according to what the frame of reference is that we're particularly looking at at the time. It shows the power, I think, of one in the middle uh, bias as well, that we tend to be drawn towards that one in the middle. It also shows an important thing, by the way, which is don't necessarily, if you have various levels of service, don't necessarily judge the profitability of each on the, the actual economic contribution it makes itself. I've said to British Airways, I said, don't judge the profitability of first class exclusively on how much money you make from first class passengers. You've also got to look at the effect that first class has on normalising business class travel. Because we can be pretty sure, can't we, that if, if airlines get rid of first class, it won't be long before our employers start saying, I think you should move a little bit further down to the back. Okay? It's a frame of reference once again. Whoops, I, I went back by mistake. Um, by the way, you can exploit this frame of referencing if you want to sell these cars, 350, dollars $500,000. Don't sell them at a car show, sell them at a yacht or plane show. After you've been looking at Learjets all afternoon and decided in a fit of responsibility not to buy one, on the, as you're walking past the exit, I'll have a couple of those. Okay? 
huge potential. Once we actually abandon the, the straitjacket of conventional, classical, logical economics, the huge potential arises for innovation in terms of pricing. I think Amazon Prime is a work of genius. It also brilliantly gamifies pricing for me. So I think having paid this 35, it's about 30 pounds in the UK. It's $50 here, is it? So, 79, blimey, they put it up. But it hugely gamifies things, because I, I go, right, I'm determined to get you bastards to pay me back. And so I just start ordering everything. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's what you intended, wasn't it? <laughs> okay? But actually, you know, the, the possibility to actually innovate in terms of price we're just looking at a brief for, for getting people to shave electrically again rather than using disposable blades. And we asked the question, you know, if you could price electric razors monthly, they'd look like a bargain compared to uh, Gillette, super nutter, bastard, four blade, whatever it is. Um, impulse saving. I talked about the fact that we make decisions very instantaneously. Financial institutions unknowingly discourage us from saving by making the practice of saving very, very time-consuming and boring and involving paperwork. This thing we invented with an agency in uh, Australia for Westpac Bank, it's called Impulse Saver. It's an app for the iPhone and when you're drunk you can just press the button, it goes ka-ching and it moves $10 into your savings account. So. My argument is, we can shop drunk, so why not let us save drunk? Let's even the balance a little bit. After all, we're suffering from a savings crisis. But also, you all know those moments, they don't happen very often, but you look at your bank account, and about once every three months or something, you go, actually, that's slightly better than I thought. You can actually then exploit the moment. But actually, it's more likely you're drunk. But, um, and you just like the ka-ching noise it makes. But I mean, that's why we shop most of the time, let's be frank about it. Most of you probably know the $300 million button. How many? Changing one single word, uh, which was from register to continue, on an e-tail website's checkout procedure, increased sales by $300 million demonstrably over the following year. It was very weird because it, by stopping people leaving, by not forcing people to leave their email addresses before they'd purchased, and instead giving the option of doing it later. Um, You'd think that, you know, this must mean people hate giving their email addresses, so after they've purchased, no one will leave their email addresses. When they changed it, 90% of people still happily left their email addresses. And, but what it was, there was something fundamentally wrong about that order. There was some element of unease that was, that, that was just encountered by the presumption of asking for something from somebody before you've gone through the transaction piece. There's weird stuff like this. You all know the thing, if you can reduce a checkout procedure in a, in a, in a website from three clicks to two, your sales go up about 40%. That's basically the lizard brain at work. It's not rational economics at work. It's the lizard just going, mm, I, don't, you know, I feel a bit uneasy. You know, it's like, like, like those scenes in Airplane, you know, that feeling of sort of, you know, should we turn on the runway lights? That's exactly what they'll be expecting us. You know, but it's, it's, that, it's that, slight, that slight feeling of inner disquiet, just that slight feeling of inner disquiet, which is trivial in the scheme of things, just prevents a sale from actually happening. If you can resolve inner disquiet, even if that disquiet only lasts a second or two, you can make a sale which you wouldn't otherwise. Now, this may be totally uninteresting to Americans. Do you buy eggs in sixes and twelves? We do. Yeah, six and twelve. I, I presented this in South Africa. Where Has anybody been to South Africa? South Africa is completely weird because you go into a supermarket and you like buy a whole cow and things like that. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't have, they don't have normal sort of quantities that we do in supermarkets. Um, and they said, well, we buy eggs in hundreds or something. Oh, God. Okay, well, but anyway, and I always have, because I've got two young girls, six isn't quite enough and 12's too many. 
Okay, because if you buy six, then the girls decide to make cupcakes at home and then I end up with one egg, you know, left. Alternatively, 12 sometimes seems a bit wasteful and a bit extreme. And I always have that brief, I'd choose free-range eggs, because they're nice, and then I always have, it only lasts a second, and if you ask me in market research, I'd never be able to point it out. But I always have that slight little bit of unease, do I buy six, do I buy 12? Waitress, work of genius, sell nine. It only lasts a second, but it resolves that inner conflict. Now, bear in mind, in a conflict between things, we experience in a very similar part of the brain to which we actually experience physical pain. We actually experience things like co information that contradicts our prejudices, apparently. Actually absorbing information that is contradictory to an existing prejudice actually registers in the part of the brain where we actually feel pain. And so, understanding that even if that's only a one-second dither, if you can actually resolve that problem in that one second, you've probably got a sale. Path dependency in decision-making needs much, much more work. I always think 1-800-MATTRESS in Manhattan is a work of genius. Because what he realises is that when people are thinking about replacing a bed, their principal concern is not what brand of mattress shall I buy, it's how the hell do I get rid of the old one. If you live in a really poor area, you can presumably just lob it out of the window. If you're really, really rich, you can get your butler to take it away. But for 90% of Manhattanites, the problem is, I'm in Manhattan, I probably don't have a car. How the hell do I get rid of a mattress? So their promise, we'll take your old mattress away, is a simple work of genius, because it resolves the discomfort and disquiet where it is at the critical point in the decision-making path. And it's almost a preemptive strike, if you like, on shops that actually sell mattresses conventionally. Um, a fascinating thing about the relativistic nature of, of, of perception, and I thought, given that I'm in New England, what better than to have a Hopper painting? And one of the reasons I love Hopper is he completely rebrands, for me, experiences I normally wouldn't like. Stopping at a gas station at two o'clock in the morning would normally be a bit of a miserable experience. But if you like Hopper, it becomes really numinous and atmospheric and interesting. Just me, then, is it? But actually, you know what I mean? You know, sitting in a diner on your own, if you hadn't seen Nighthawks, would actually be pretty lonely and crap. But if you've actually seen Nighthawks, you think, hmm, what an interesting, you know, this is extraordinary. Suddenly the experience is invested with all manner of emotional associations and, 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 and values, which it didn't previously have. Which means that actually, like Tom Sawyer and Huckleby Finn, you can take things that are bad and reposition them as a good. You can actually, a lot, an awful lot of things, you know that old joke, how many software engineers does it take to change a light bulb? None, we'll just have the marketing boys portray the dead light bulb as a feature. You've got that. <laughs> anyway, um, but actually there's a little bit of truth in that. That actually there are things, uh, a great advertising man retired to an apple farm in New Mexico, and the problem he had is that the, the hailstones from the early hail falls pitted all the apples. So they were all dented on the outside and no one in the market would buy them. So he sold them by mail order as genuine hail-pitted New Mexico apples and made actually the fact that they were sort of like a golf ball on the outside actually a virtue, not a weakness. And we can actually do that. I, mean, I think it's an important thing to remember that we can actually, sometimes, sometimes we automatically assume that things are bad, but with the right reframing, we can make them good. A very, very successful uh, flu remedy in the UK was called Night Nurse. It started out being called Day Nurse. The only problem was that, uh, effective as it was as relieving the symptoms of, uh, of, of influenza, uh, it also sent people fast asleep. Until a very ingenious marketing man said, but actually, if we position this as a nighttime flu cure, the fact that it sends you to sleep isn't a problem, it's an advantage. 
that's the point that actually the frame of reference can actually massively change things from bad to good. Ferrari does this most ingeniously. I think it's almost the cheekiest thing you could possibly do, uh, which is to say um, that you can have a Ferrari, if you buy a Ferrari, you can have it delivered for free, or you can go and collect it from the factory and pay $500. Now, <laughs> it's a very clever thing to do in a sense. You know, if you think about it, it's cheaper for them. It's cheaper for them to actually get you to collect it. But by positioning this as an additional service that you get a little bit of a visit to the factory, they've ingeniously got some of the richest people in the world to fly out to Italy to drive a Ferrari home and to pay for the privilege. Um, but interestingly, I had an interesting idea about this in airlines. The conventional airline model in yield management is that the, you pay a premium to go on planes for which there's more demand. Okay? The more demand there is for a plane, as it books up, you pay more per seat. And I said, well, weirdly, I said, it may just be me, and it may be you know, the other 10, 20% of people who, you know, who, who have mild sort of uh, claustrophobia. I'd pay a premium to go on the emptiest flight of the day. If British Airways said to me, you can pay £50 and we'll text you the day before and tell you which of the seven flights to New York you're on, but we guarantee it'll be the one that's least crowded, deal. You know, I'm not fussy, I don't care, you know, when I go to the airport at 11 o'clock or 4 o'clock. I'm not one of those weird people who says, I'll have a whole day of meetings and then I'll go to the airport. I write in my diary, going to New York, and block out the whole day. My view is, my... My, my view is in the 19th century it took six days, now it takes one. That's good enough, okay? I'm not going to squeeze things down anymore. But if you take von Mises and his restaurant analogy, the Royal Mail in the UK were delivering 98% of letters, first-class letters, next day. And they decided this wasn't good enough, and they tried to improve the whole thing by getting it up to 99%. And it, the effort required to do this actually broke the organisation. It had massive, massive damaging effects. What they failed to realise is that actually it was like the restaurant that produces good food but actually stank. Because the perception of how many letters got there the next day was actually 60%. Now always bear this in mind when you've got a business problem. If your bloody reality is better than the perception, what are you doing trying to improve the reality? If you think about it, the value of a letter is not the, the, the likelihood that it gets there next day. The value of a letter is my belief that the letter will get there the next day. That's where von Mises is absolutely right. The subjective judgment is where value lies. Logic won't tell you this, research won't tell you this. No one would have said Red Bull could charge three times as much as Coke for a drink. Why? Because they put it in a smaller can. So we thought it was a different kind of drink. Now, no one in a market research group would say, I'm not going to pay you $1.50 for a drink, but I would if you gave me less of it, OK? But that's how the brain works. <laughs> Couple more problems. People don't do what they say they believe. They do what's convenient and then they repent. I mentioned this lizard brain thing. In many ways, we act first and post-rationalise. The brain is not, the conscious brain is not so much the oval office of ourselves, it's the press office. It actually issues hurried denials and post-rationalisations for decisions that have been taken elsewhere. The sadder one down here, which came up with, with Paul Dolan, who's the professor of behavioural sciences at the LSE, when a man says, my wife doesn't understand me, it doesn't mean he's planning an affair, he's already had one. This is just to explain how human behaviour works. It's vitally important for the environmental movement because what it tells you is you can change behaviours and attitudes follow. 
All marketing tries to exist by changing attitudes and getting the behaviour to follow. Actually, it often happens the other way around. If you get people to recycle, they become keener on environmental things. If you get people to ride bicycles, they become more sympathetic to environmental things. That actually, our attitudes are often a post-rationalisation of our behaviour derived simply to avoid cognitive dissonance. Let's be honest, students aren't environmentally keen on environmental sustainability. Um, you know, they don't, students don't ride bikes because they're keen on environmental sustainability. They're environmentally keen because they can't afford cars. I guarantee if you went to a student faculty and gave them all uh, Lincoln Navigators, the attitude to the environment would become a little less intense. Okay? <laughs> But what, what I'm saying is that men don't go, you know, I've noticed declining comprehension and empathy levels in my wife, so I think it's time to outsource a range of uh, sexual services, uh, maybe to alternative providers. Okay. Well, <laughs> they, they probably do if they work for Accenture or something, but I mean, other, other than that. What actually happens is people get drunk at a party, they end up snogging someone they didn't intend to snog, and as a desperate attempt to make sense of their actions post hoc, they actually concoct a completely bogus case against their wife, basically. Now, I think this is a sort of weirdly depressing fact, but I think it's, actually, it's worth us knowing this, because I think an awful lot of human misunderstanding can be avoided if we ask ourselves the question, is this really happening the way round we think it is? Um, here are two heroes, von Mises on the left, Daniel Kahneman, the father of behavioural economics on the right, um, and finally, back to that sweet spot. What I don't have and what behavioural economics doesn't have and maybe never will have is a perfect answer to absolutely everything. What it does have is some very, very good questions, which takes you back, just says, logic bears this out, market research bears this out, however, it is still possible you may be wrong. Is it, you know, and what, in terms of human behaviour, we will never develop, there's a great phrase in economics actually, all models are wrong but some of them are useful, which is not a bad and accurate thing to say. We'll probably never have a single, you know, theory of everything model of human behaviour, nor should we necessarily attempt to have one, it might be dreadful if we did. However, what is worth accepting is we can have multiple models. What people say can be interesting and revealing. Logic is not a terrible model. Quite a lot of the time, if you put the price of something down, more people buy it. But as Joel on software made the point, quite often the very opposite happens. There's a saying in the art world, actually, if you put a painting in the window of your gallery for £2,000 and it doesn't sell, after two weeks, double the price. You're just as likely to sell it at the higher price as you are at the lower price. That's crazy, surely? No, because we actually regard price as a proxy for value, and there are people wandering around with £4,000 to spend on art who don't want to buy a £1,000 painting. So, I mean, if you look at the psychology of wine, the whole thing goes completely haywire, by the way, which is we actually enjoy it more when we're told it's expensive. Um, but the vital thing to remember is that in any decision-making unit, and this is where I think the composition of boards of companies needs to acknowledge that someone from a human understanding background needs to be there. You know, board diversity, you can't just have eight people who are brilliant at reading a, spread, you know, reading a, a, reading a spreadsheet or reading a balance sheet. There's, the gender, there's undoubtedly a massively important gender component, which is you know, a massive testosterone-packed group of highly homogeneous people will not on their own make the best decisions. They think they do, of course, because all boards of directors are great believers in the efficient market hypothesis because uh, the market pays them a huge amount of money, which is a very strong reason to believe that it's efficient. <laughs> okay? But um, 
But, the, the, uh, you know, in many cases, what businesses need is actually, you know, as well as technological engineering and mechanical ability, businesses that aren't actually blessed with some really good psychological insights somewhere at the top that can avoid the worst excesses of logic. Because unpoliced logic, logic unpoliced by creativity or psychology, can be just as wrong as the opposite. Um, then I think that will help places find what I call that sweet spot, where the solution involves not just technology, not just economics, but actually what makes us human. Steve Jobs, I think, is, you know, as a fitting tribute, was a man who solved problems by looking at the human and working outwards. That's fundamentally what this is about. And in that sweet spot, what you can do is make things charming, even advertising. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.